We left off in Genesis 31 last, last time. Genesis chapter 31, if you want to turn there. And we've been seeing Jacob, Jacob's empire being built in the land of Laban, under Laban's household. And we come to the point where, where it's time for Jacob to head for home. And what we really see in this chapter is the faithfulness of God to his children, a faithfulness that helps us to survive life because that's what God intended us to do is to live life with him, isn't it? To hold his hand, to look to him, to depend on him. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. And we're to live in that faith relationship with God. And what we find here is God encouraging that faith to Jacob and to ourselves as well. So let's just read the first few verses. We're going to step through the first part of this chapter and draw some lessons from it. Verse 1, now Jacob heard the word of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he, had, he has acquired all this wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable towards him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So we find here that God gives a directive to Jacob. It's time to return to the land of promise, to, to his homeland, to the land that God had promised to give to J Jacob and his descendants. You know, and it's interesting here in that directive that J God also coupled that directive with the circumstances because Jacob, Jacob's life was getting uncomfortable living with Uncle Laban and under his realm. And, and God had enriched him somewhat at La Laban's expense and, and the family was turning on Jacob. And so God made him a little uncomfortable and then gave him a directive. It's time to pull up roots, and head back to Canaan. But in doing so, God gave him this wonderful promise. He says, says to him in verse 3, I will be with you. God gave him a charge, a directive, and said, I will be with you. You know, and God never expects us to fulfill his will, to follow his will alone, on our own, in our own strength. He doesn't expect us to depend on our own selves to perform what he asks of us. Instead, he promises throughout Scripture this wonderful promise that he is with you. And, and that includes whether you're obeying a biblical teaching or maybe God is orchestrating a change in our attitudes and our priorities where God is dealing with the fulfillment of our calling or a specific venture or ministry. God promises to be with you. And when he's with us in whatever life brings us, wherever he leads us, he'll, the promise of his presence encompasses not only the comfort of his presence, but the supply of his enabling grace. That's what this indicates. I am with you. It indicates the power of his protection, as we read in Psalm 121 today. It promises, it includes the strength to endure whatever God leads us to. The wisdom discerned between right and wrong, good and evil. And that we have also the comfort of his leading us day by day and fathering us through life. And that's just some of the things that is included when he says, I'm with you in this. I've got your back. I am with you. And that's what it represents. Because we recognize in reality that when in our relationship with God, we are partnering with him in whatever he has for us. And God has a will for each of us. You know, God has his expressed specific will in regards to the do's and don'ts and right and wrongs and the things thou shalt and thou shalt not in the scriptures. But God also directs each of us in our gifts and our callings in whatever environment we live to serve him where we are at. And he doesn't call us to do that alone. Does he? 
God, is, God instead is, works in us and through us because in reality, we're just vessels, aren't we? The Bible refers to our, our lives as vessels, as earthen vessels. That means we're fragile. But as vessels, there were vessels that he enables and empowers. That's why it's important in reality to be empty of self and to allow God to fill our lives with his, his person, his instructions, and his spirit. In reality, it's foolish to live life outside of the realm of I am with you. Because God's a creator of life. He's redeemed us. He's saved us. He's written the instruction book. And it is restful to follow him, to feel safe under his directions and instructions in life. That's where stability and safety and, and peace is found. And so God intends for all of us to live in light of this promise he gives here to Jacob that I am with you. Now let's read on because I think what we see here is Jacob as he considers this, recognizes that God had been with him, recognizes the faithfulness of God in his life. Let's start with verse 4. We're going to read through verse 16, where it says, So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock and said to them, I see your father's countenance that is not favorable towards me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said, Thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said, Thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes now and see all the rams that sleep on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted, for I have seen all that Label is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, where you made, it a, made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? And so on. Oh, let's go on. Two more verses. And are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us. And also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Now through this account, we see a couple of references to God, Jacob recognizing God's hand in his life. What's really interesting is that when we studied Jacob, we, we want to think that you know, he was a shrewd businessman. And that he may have taken credit for his successes. You know, he outwit old wily Laban, so to speak, and he might have stuck his spiritual thumbs in his spiritual suspenders and said, look what I, I managed to come out on top. That's what most, most of us would do on our, in our pride, and that's what you'd expect out of Jacob. Maybe Jacob is learning some things, and he recognizes here in this passage that God's hand was working in his life. He recognized that God had prospered him, that God had led him to to take his wages according to the certain colors of sheep in order that God may prosper him as God had promised to him. Because all these things are fulfillment of the promise. That God was going to make of him a great nation. That God was going to bless him and so on. And God was fulfilling that promise. And Jacob looks back and says, yeah, God's hand is at, was at work. God is faithful. He did keep his promise. He did take care of me. And that's, that's very important before Jacob steps out on this next chapter in his life. You know, we have been told today, too, that in the New Testament, that God has begun a good work in us. Isn't that true? Philippians 
And he continues to do so to the day of Christ, that verse tells us. And we have to look at our lives. Do we give him the credit and the glory for anything good that, that comes of our lives? Do we recognize the grace of God, the power of God, the love of God at work in us and on us and through us? Through us? Even the great apostle Paul said, it's by the grace of God I am what I am. And he recognized that nothing good came of his life apart from the hand of God at work in, in him and through him. And so we need to give him the credit. We need to look back and think, yeah, I've got a lot of regrets and maybe made some mistakes, but God has been faithful. He's ever the same. He's been faithfully chiseling away at, at the old self and forming me into the image of Christ. He has, he has watched over me, taken care of me, and prospered me, and so on. Maybe that's one reason the Bible tells us to remember, to remember, to remember. We look back and see what God has done. Sometimes we're not, you know, without, uh, even, without us even realizing it. Are we thankful? And then the question is, is that memory of God's mercy to us, God's faithfulness to us, God's power in us, his love for us, does it encourage my heart to trust him for tomorrow? Because that's what happens here. We look back and think, God was faithful. He can do what he says he does. He does keep his promises. And it may have done that for Jacob because he was facing some challenges in this move. You know, he had to get away from Laban. He realized that. Things were getting dangerous for him there. And would Laban even let him go? You know, with, with, his, with his Laban's daughters and grandchildren and all the herds that Jacob had acquired. But also we have to remember that on the other end of the journey, he had to face Esau. And in Genesis 27 41, Esau had pledged to kill his brother Jacob. And so staying wasn't so good and leaving wasn't so good either. There wasn't good alternatives, was there? Talk about being between a rock and a hard place, or between a Laban and an Esau. It would have been easy to stay in the comforts of home, if possible, or not go directly back, you know, to kind of head back towards home and take, you know, like the old was a snagglepuss used to say, exit, stage left, you know, and take a different direction. I'm dating myself, if none of you have heard of that cartoon. And, you know, or, like a lot of people do, just go hide, hide out up north, you know, on the back 40 to get away from it all. But no, God had instructed him to return, didn't he, with his family. And he may not have returned if he didn't realize that God had preserved him, kept him, blessed him, and prospered him in the past. You know, God's will may not always seem appealing. It may not always make sense to us. It may not always seem like the best option to us. But what better place is there to be in the place where we know the Almighty is with us? Because when He leads us, He's with us. When, he, when we follow, he's, he, he's there beside us. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says this, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Profound, isn't it? Yet simple. We need not fear what we face because he will never leave us nor forsake us. He, we read this morning, God never sleeps or slumber. He never says, oopsie, sorry, I didn't see that coming. He's got our backs. But it's not always to rest in those promises at the time of crisis and decision, is it? Because we get our focus on the problem and we go automatically to, you know, to the self-preservation mode and forget about the faithful power of God in our lives. And that's why we're instructed in the Bible to spend time with the Lord in His Word and in prayer, to reflect on our relationship to Him and His goodness to us, to us and His promises to us to help us keep our focus where it ought to be. And that, then, we are, then we will remember and then we will be thankful 
when we remember God's faithfulness to us and his mercy for us. Well, Jacob remembered that, and in the next portion, we see God's promise to be with him, at least initially, kept. Let's read here, Genesis verse 17 through verse 30. Let's read this section. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban, the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to harm, do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now surely you have gone, because you greatly longed for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Well, here we see immediately God's promise to be with him, to, over, to watch over him fulfilled. In verse 24, we see this intervention where God spoke to Laban. He says, don't, don't harm him. Basically, if we want to paraphrase it, don't harm him. And that may have been Laban's, Laban's intention. And even Laban told Jacob of that protection. You know, how many times has God intervened in our lives and maybe we're not even aware of it? Because God's faithful to us. It's just like with your children. How many times you grab their hand before they step out in the street and they don't even think about the, what, what you're protecting them from. And so it is with our God. I remember experiencing my own life from many years ago. If any of you remember, again, I'm dating myself, the Rapid City Flash Flood of 1972. Some of you were still were my age might remember that event. In fact, I just found out a couple months ago that Wayne Joyner was part of a group of guys that went out to help uh, the, the, the rescue effort, so to speak, in 1972. Well, on a Friday night in 1972, the, uh, the dam on the river burst and uh, there's two torrential rains and flood the city, killed 238 people. And um, that, that night we were supposed to, my family was supposed to be in a resort right on that river. We were, we were out there for a vacation. We had reservations through Saturday morning. And my parents decided to Friday, let's, let's just leave and start making our way towards home. We woke up Saturday morning in a tent and heard about the flood in our resort. The pieces of our resort that we were staying in were never found. You know, and um, God had a plan for myself, my siblings, my parents. How many times does God protect us and we aren't even aware of it? And that's what he did with Jacob here. Jacob was way aware that Laban may pursue him, but God intervened. And Jacob later on recognizes God's faithfulness. If you jump ahead a little bit to verse 42, we see, unless the God of, of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac 
had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And so God, Jacob recognized that what, how much that must have encouraged his heart to see the, the love of God, the care of God, the protection of God, God keeping his promises personally to him as he does with you and I. Now, when Jacob left, we don't necessarily see that Jacob departed by faith and trusting God. Many Bible teachers believe that the decision to sneak away was not a decision of faith in God's promise. He says in verse 31, the next verse where we left off, he says, Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. For I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. And so he's operating out of fear rather than out of faith. Jacob may not, have, may not have been completely resting in the promises of God, but you know, God took care of him anyway. God protected him anyway. God preserved his life in spite of himself. Jacob's self-preservation mode kicked in. He wanted to protect his safety, and that's why he snuck away secretly. You know, when God wants to rest in the confidence of God's love for us, like that verse in 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not made, been made perfect in love. God doesn't want to motivate us by fear. He wants to motivate us by his love. He cares for us in love. And perfect, that perfect love that God has for us will cast out fear, does it not? Because he keeps his promises in spite of us. And aren't we so glad that God is so patient and merciful in his faithfulness to us? What a tremendous, tremendous promise repeated throughout scriptures that we often blow past, take for granted, Lo, I am with you always. That's his promise in the Great Commission, isn't it? God's called us to be a witness for him, and at the end of the Great Commission, there's those same verses. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the worlds. I am with you. And we can count on that in our walk with God. And that's the one we, t we ought to turn to whenever we, be we, we get in distress, whenever we have this kind of between a rock and a hard place situations that Jacob was facing. Now, we find here in this in this text, you may have noticed as we read through it, that there was another reason maybe Laban had pursued the party, and that's because they had stolen his idols. We see that Rachel had taken them, and, and here Laban asked that question in verse 30, why did you steal my gods? Many believe that this was Laban's, maybe his greatest concern. They had stolen his religion, his false gods which indicate to us that the household of Laban was a godless household. And as you go on, we find here that this becomes a real point of contention. Let's, read, let's pick it up here in verse 32. He says, with whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. Jacob obviously did not know Rachel had taken them. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob, well, there it says, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And he said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Well, apparently, Rachel had learned a little bit from her father's deceptive practices and lying ways. And it's really surprising here in reality, if we pause here for a moment, isn't it, that, that Rachel uh, had worshipped idols. I mean, this is Jacob. 
the father of Israel, his wife who had worshipped idols. And notice it's plural. She had taken the idols as plural because it was common in that day to practice pluralism, which means they believed in many gods. They wanted to cover all their bases, all the gods of various things. They wanted to be very superstitious in their, in their idol worship. And, and maybe apparently to some, Jehovah was just another one of those gods. In fact, we, f- we see that in f- that account given from missionaries that often they run into that in the mission field where the first reaction of many of the people they minister to is to just incorporate the God of the Bible along with their other gods who they worship. And it might have been acceptable to Laban and his family because it was a common practice. That was the culture. Everybody did it, so to speak. That's just all it was. They all had their, their idols, their figurines and that they unimaginably worshipped. But just because everybody did it isn't a legitimate reason, is it? Or maybe they thought, I'm just being safe. There's no, no harm if they're not real. I'm just, just in case it's real. They are, whatever the reason, they have compromised. And it's somewhat shocking when you read through that to realize that, the, that God was who used Jacob to father the nation of Israel's wife, choice for a wife, was worshipped idols. Yet we find that throughout Israel's history, don't we? The plague the, for them to, to accommodate the culture, to compromise with the culture, to go along with the religious trends of the day, and Israel is continually plagued by the worship of idols in their, in their midst. You know, I think, you know, that, well, maybe God's going to deal with this, but as you page through this account, you don't see that the Bible is recording for us that God dealt with this issue in the lives of Rachel and Jacob. But we do find, if you turn to Exodus, when we come to the Ten Commandments, that God finally does clarify, put his foot down. So let's go to Exodus chapter 20, where God does begin to make it clear. You know, in some ways, it's an amazing thing that God uses us in spite of sometimes ourselves, our shortcomings, our ig- things we are ignorant of, as he did in the family of Jacob. And yet, here God makes it clear what his, abs- what his will is in regards to religious compromise and idols and so on. Verse 1 here says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, and so on. So God here says it's time to make it clear. God's a patient God as he works through history. And here he clearly defines the, fa- the, the, the worship of the one and only God, the living God. You know, we see throughout the Old Testament especially God ridiculing idols in the sense that they are dead. They, they're made by man's hands and then man worships them. They can't speak or they can't hear. They're powerless. And, and God somewhat ridicules and uses sarcasm in regards to the idols, but nonetheless, throughout Israel's history, they seemed, when they slipped away from God, that they would go back to the religious compromise of embracing idols in their lives. Here, God leaves no room for compromise. He wants his people to truly and accurately know him. Let's, let's define who I am. I am the one and only living God. I'm the creator. I delivered you. I, I had the power to rescue you from Egypt and from bondage. And God expected that their, their soul worship of him. 
you know, we find these repeated reminders throughout Israel's history because Israel always went through these cycles throughout their history of, of apathy and compromise and, and so on. And before they turned back to God and they, re, and they came back to God and, and they, re, they, they got right with God and God once again fellowshiped with them and, the, you know, the wheel goes round and round. It goes, they were cyclic, weren't they? But when Israel drifted from the God, two things characterized their lives, moral compromise and religious compromise. They went hand in hand. You see both. You see moral compromise, religious compromise throughout the scriptures. Turn with me, if you will, to Joshua 24, if you would, please. Joshua chapter 24. Here in Joshua 24, we find at the end of the, end of the campaign to, to capture the promised land. Joshua led Israel on, on their campaigns to claim the land that God had promised to them. And we find here in these chapters challenges in regards to their ongoing relationship with Jehovah as they settled in the land of rest, the land of promise, the land of bounty. And in Joshua 24, verse 14, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord, Serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river, and in Egypt serve the Lord. Apparently Israel had taken with them, even throughout this campaign, this, this, this religious compromise, this idol worship, and he says it's time to put them away in, in faithfulness to God. Look at verse, jump down to verse 23, where it says, Now therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And it seems that God was forever seeking to woo Israel to himself in, in, in faithfulness and recognition as God is the only one and true God in life. Let's go to the book of Judges. You're right next door. Let's jump over to chapter 10. Judges is a book which records for us some of those cycles of apostasy, repentance and restoration in the nation of Israel. And here, let's notice what, at a time when Israel was walking with God, what God through the, did through Gideon. Let's, Judges chapter 10, verse 6. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. And so once again, we see Israel falling into apostasy. From that year, they, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years, all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites and Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand yet you have forsaken me and served other gods therefore I will deliver you no more go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen let them deliver you in your time of distress and the children of Israel said to the Lord we have sinned whatever seems best to you only deliver us this day we pray and so they put away the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. 
and his soul could no longer endure the misery, misery of Israel. And the, then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin this fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be the head over all Israel. And so on. Well, once again, we see this cycle occurring here in Israel's life. And God did not tolerate their religious compromise. He disciplined them. And that was often the, the one characteristic you see over and over again. When Israel got sloppy in their walk with God, and they turned from God. They instead were judged by God, disciplined by God. He allowed other nations to oppress them until they came back to him. God wants his, his children to be distinct. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 Verse 5, God tells them that they shall make no covenant with others in the land. And he says, when the Lord your God delivers, delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them, utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, for they will take, nor take their daughters for your son, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And so God has always wanted his people to be distinct. He wants them to be separate from the world morally as well as religiously. When you read in Judges chapter 6, you find the man Gideon, as God lifts, raises him up to lead Israel, going out and tearing down the high places, the altars. He publicly destroys them. And he was, about, he was gonna, almost got in trouble for it. The city rose up against him because they tore down those religious idols even though God was about to deliver them and re rescue them and save them. Well, if you turn over to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we find the same thing. God does not warns us to be careful about religious compromise. And though we might live in a day and age when we don't, have a tendency to compromise that those that worship idols, as they did in Old Testament days, but we do live in a day and age in which people have compromised their belief systems. When they embrace thoughts and attitudes and philosophies and teachings that are contrary to the Word of God. And just like Gideon, when he tore down the high places, he we're told to tear to, to tear down as well. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, it says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. That means we're in a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so the church is called to stand for truth and pull down those arguments that oppose the truth of scriptures. That's the responsibility we have. Just like Gideon pulled down the high places under God's leading and direction, so we are to tear down by standing for the truth of God's word above all. And it's important because that's how God reveals himself to people. You know, we're not tearing down structures. We're not tearing down people. We tear down belief systems that contradict God's word because we understand, first of all, that we're commanded to do so in our stand for truth. But we understand as well that people need to understand who the one and only true God is, just like in the Old Testament. God wanted to eliminate idols so he could declare and people could understand he was their creator, he was their redeemer, their deliverer, he was the only living God. And so we do today as we stand for the truth of the gospel in our lives. So it's interesting, the parallel, isn't it? 
It's also interesting that the New Testament addresses both personal and ecclesiastical separation because just like Israel, the tendency in life is to compromise morally and religiously when we drift from God. And so the Bible addresses personal separation from sin, but it also addresses what we call ecclesiastical separation, separation from false religious teachings. Let's go to Romans 15, if you would, please. Romans 15. Now, some people say today, though, that's not very nice. Christians are supposed to be nice. They're to be tolerant. And we're not talking about how we treat people. We're talking about what people believe, what people, what people embrace, what teachings are out there that contradict the gospel. And it's actually the most loving thing we can do to present to people the truth of God's word because that's how God reveals himself. If we allow the word of God to be compromised, people will have a skewed view of God. If we allow the gospel to be compromised, people will think they're getting, getting to heaven by the wrong program because all false religion has the same common denominator and that they preach that you get to heaven by being, being the best you can be, by good works, by good deeds. Even though the Bible says, by grace we're saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, if any man should boast. And when we allow the gospel to be compromised and confused, people will, will allow people to slip into a crisis eternity for embracing the muddied message, the wrong message. Verse 16 here, Romans 15, says, 16, 15, I think I have that backwards. Okay, someone help me out. Um, hmm. Boy, I'm really confused. Maybe it is time for me to retire like we talked about last week. <laughs> God tells us in the scriptures I'm looking for is that, he, that we are to mark and avoid those that cause offenses and divisions contrary to the doctrine which we have learned. If you, if you found it before I do, spit, yell it out. To mark and avoid those who teach contrary to the scriptures. That's what to do. We're to mark them, we're to recognize them. That's what that simply means, to recognize that they're not teaching the truth and then to avoid that teaching. We're to, be, we're, we're, we're to remain distinct. And though that might not, might not seem kind to some, yet it's the nicest thing, the most loving thing we can do is to stand for truth so people can know the truth so the truth can set them free. When we compromise the truth, there is no freedom. There's no deliverance. There's no salvation. Thank you. Hmm. There it is. Now you can write that down. Well, was I off? I know Jeremiah 15, 16. Maybe that's where I got it confused. It's promising. You know, God not only tells us to be discerning towards error, but we're simply to exalt him. That's our responsibility. We're to exalt the truth of God's word. That's what God calls us to do, to preach the word, to stand for truth, to embrace the truth. And in the fact remains, the message of the Bible is an exclusive message. There's, we don't believe in pluralism in many gods. We don't believe there are multiple different acceptable interpretations of scripture. We don't believe there are multiple ways of getting to heaven. Jesus said, as it says before us, Jesus said, there, he is the way, the truth, and the life. The, the, the. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way for sin to be resolved, and that was through the death of Christ for us on the cross. No one comes to the Father except through him, and that makes Christianity an exclusive belief system, has an exclusive message of salvation, because we believe salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. 
It's an exclusive message. It should be held without compromise. When it is compromised, the message is confused. And so there's no doubt in the life of Jacob and Rachel, when, they, when Rachel got to home and maybe you know, spread out her little idols, if Jacob allowed her to do that, we don't know that for sure. And when the people visited, they think, okay, which God is, which is the true God? Now, Jacob has all these stories about God's faithfulness to him, but look what's on their mantle. It confuses people when you, when you compromise. And that's why God tells us to cast on those arguments, to mark and avoid, because God wants his truth to be distinct, and he wants it to be distinct in our lives as we live it and in our teaching and preaching and the beliefs that we embrace. And it's because compromise communicates something, doesn't it? When you compromise with, with, with false teaching, it says something to those around you. That may be, you know, pluralism. You're okay, I'm okay, they're okay, everyone's okay. doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sin sincere, which is a lie of the devil. God says it does matter. He says, I am the Lord God. You shall have no other gods, no other belief systems before me, God says. And God wants us to stand for truth. And that's why we don't believe in cooperative evangelism. Going along with other churches that do not hold to the truth of the gospel in order to accomplish some objective. Because it's confusing. Which truth is the right truth? In fact, the only way we can get along is not to talk about the distinctions between our doctrinal statement and theirs. You see, partnering with those who do not hold to the truth of Scripture is just wrong because God says to mark and avoid them, to cast down those arguments. It's not that people aren't welcome to join us in whatever we do, but when we compromise, it communicates the wrong message, does it not? And God calls his children to stand for truth and embrace the truth that others may clearly know him. And so some people may ask, well, what about unity? Aren't we to be unified? You see, in the Bible, the Bible teaches that unity is accomplished by standing for truth. Unity is a work of the Spirit. Ephesians 4 says, keep the unity of the Spirit. And what the Spirit does is teaches us the Bible. It's a truth of God that unifies. That's what unifies us. Being in this room doesn't unify us. Being members of a church, church doesn't unify us. Living in the same community doesn't unify us. Being in the same stadium isn't unity e either, is it? He, unity is based on the truth of God. And when God teaches us the truth, he changes our thinking. So we begin thinking like God. And, we, you know, all of a sudden, what do you know? We're unified with others of like precious faith because they're, they're accepting God's truth. We accept God's truth, and we're unified around God's truth. It's a byproduct of the work of the Spirit, not our primary objective. When God says keep the unity of the Spirit, he's, he's talking about resolve your personal differences because unity is of the Spirit. As the Spirit of God teaches us God's word, we, we embrace others. And that's why wherever you go in the world, when you walk into a church that teaches the truth of the gospel, you're one. You have a unity. You can have fellowship. And that's how the Spirit creates unity in our lives. Any other unity is a false unity. When we try to accomplish unity any other way, it produces a false unity. Because it's either based on a neglect of Scripture or an ignorance of Scripture the means by which God uses to unify us. And yes, we are to love one another, and we may befriend and serve others and fellowship with others, but unity is a work of the Spirit. It's a byproduct of a love for Jesus and a love for His Word. It's a matter of heart. It's a matter of the work of the Spirit. And that's why for us, our responsibility is to embrace the truth, stand for the truth, and let God take care of the unity factor as He draws people together.
That's a true unity with others of like precious faith. It's only the work of God, and only he can produce it. And that is why in the book of Jude, which is a book which speaks about the end times, it speaks about a time of moral and religious apostasy, surprise, surprise, in the end times, other religious beliefs, believers are told this in Jude 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, that's what unifies us, faith in Christ, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly. It's our responsibility. You know, the world has sold us a lie that we're to be tolerant, which to them translates into religious compromise. That's not tolerance. We tolerate one another every day. We live together. We're sinners. We offend each other. That's tolerance. Tolerance is personal tolerance. God never asks us to tolerate false teaching, that which contradicts the gospel. And though Rachel's idols are not mentioned again in the Bible in her lifetime, by Exodus chapter 20, if God hadn't mentioned it to his saints by then, he puts his foot down and says, this is how, it's, this is how it ought to be, because compromise does matter to God. And God makes it clear throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New. And so he calls us to be simply faithful to God. That's all it is. You know, the first part of our lesson, we saw the faithfulness of God to his children. God was faithful to them, to be with them. And he wants to encourage our heart in that promise. This last part of the message, we've seen that we are to be faithful to God by standing for his truth, both in how we live and what we, the truth we embrace. A couple of verses that mention these concepts of holding fast and standing fast. Again, in Joshua, this time in chapter 22, verse 5, it says this, But take careful heed to do the commandment of the law which Moses, his servant, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And a verse, a passage from the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, that is, Paul and his team, for the saints in Thessalonica, Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning has chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. See, God expects in the normal process of salvation to grow, salvation to glorification, that we hold fast, we stand fast to the truth of his word, and, and then we let the chips fall where they may, because our responsibility is to hold forth the word of life that others might clearly see the truth that sets them free. Let's pray. Father, thank you.